This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. Arguments in and around the Israeli military this week echoing the pro-democracy protests that are not just confined to Israel but going around the world and a conversation with someone uniquely well-placed to discuss the lessons for Israel from the war on democracy in Central and Eastern Europe and what both might learn from each other. It's Unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. I was thinking this week, Jonathan, of a quote by Ariel Sharon, Israel's former prime minister. And this is what he used to say about interviews. He said, no one ever regretted not giving an interview. It was a line he borrowed from his media strategist, Reuven Adler. But, you know, I know this is against our journalistic DNA, so let's try and be gamekeepers and not poachers for a moment and talk about that, right? No one ever regretted not giving an interview. I'm not talking about Chris Licht for now. I'm being more parochial and talking about Israel's foreign minister, Eli Cohen, who uh, interviewed this week on Israeli public radio, was asked about Kamala Harris and uh, her comments, by the way, in a very pro-Israel speech that she made at the Israeli embassy, uh, celebrating 75 years for Israel's independence. And he said, after she said that it's important to keep the judiciary independent, he said, I doubt she read even one part of the judicial overhaul plan. It's good, isn't it, that he is actually Israel's chief diplomat. I mean, <laughs> he's foreign affairs minister. One part of the job is to make nice and have good relations, especially, you might think, with Israel's number one ally and crucial military you know, benefactor. Extraordinary thing to say. Massively sexist, I think we could probably agree. You know, you might want to say a little bit of racism thrown in there as well. This idea that, you know, I don't think he said that when Tony Blinken more or less made the same remarks when, as Secretary of State when he visited. It does seem actually like there's a bit of an effort, a sort of self-sabotage strategy coming out of Ellie Cohen's foreign ministry, appointing, nominating as consul general in New York, somebody who said that they were a racist. This seems to come from the same playbook of how to lose friends and alienate people. Um, But so this, you know, yeah, offensive and unwise, I would have thought. Yeah, well, they walk that back. They're not going to appoint Mai Golan, uh, who, by the way, called herself a proud racist, if you want to be accurate on that. But yes, definitely in days when there are certain tension in the relationship between the US and Israel, and the prime minister is uh, long awaiting his invite to uh, DC that isn't arriving, maybe not the smartest thing to do to insult the uh, vice president of the United States. I'm paraphrasing, right? What he actually said was a slightly more polite way of saying, you know, she doesn't know what she's talking about, which of course is is quite insulting. He walked that back. But, you know, it's another day and another gaffe by an Israeli uh, minister. We should add also that uh, this is the week that Netanyahu appointed a media advisor, Gilad Tzwik, that used to say about uh, Biden that he is incompetent, that he is ruining America, uh, supported all of the conspiracy theories about the elections being rigged. He, of course, after being appointed Pointed, wrote on Twitter in English that anything he said before was as a private citizen. And he doesn't believe that now. But that is, if ever you needed a media advisor to explain something, it's to explain this appointee of a, a man as a media advisor, for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, you never, one of the rules of political advice is when the advisor becomes the story, uh, yeah. something's gone badly wrong. Here, the advisor is the story before they've even started the job. Yeah. I mean, the advisor should be trying to repair the damage done by the foreign minister, say, rather than <laughs> repairing the damage done by himself. So that's yeah. bad. It does make me think that overall about Netanyahu's government, whether, you know, if you can't join them, beat them. You know, in other words, if we're not going to have good relations and warm relations with Biden's White House, if we're not going to get invited in by the Biden-Harris administration, well, then the other route we go is sort of culture war. And we stoke our base with seeming to stand up to those liberal, cultural Marxists, anti-Zionists in Washington, you know, as they would frame it. And so because we don't get uh, warmth from Biden-Harris, we're going to go on the offensive and diss and insult them. That I could imagine that being, it's the kind of move that the sort of Trump crowd would do. And you wonder if some of that has rubbed off on the Netanyahu world. And therefore, they're thinking, we, you know, if you're not going to be friendly to us, we can be unfriendly back to you. Yeah, well, that's assigning a lot of sophistication. And maybe this is just <laughs> malpractice and, and, and a sign that Netanyahu is not in control of the people who are working for him. Look, I don't think the Biden administration is holding its breath, wondering what Gilad Zvik is going to say, or even what Eli Cohen is Minister of Foreign, of Foreign Affairs, because everyone knows the de facto Minister of Foreign Affairs, the person they're talking to is Ron Dermer. It's not that they care about every comma that every uh, Israeli official is saying, but there's a general climate and a general air between the two countries that needs to be cleared, definitely when they're discussing serious issues like the uh, an Iran deal that seems right around the corner or Saudi normalization. Much more important, but we need to have a good relationship with our, you know, most important ally to, to continue on that. On that, yeah. Uh, and I uh, think route. just add it to that file. I think you're completely right about the these are moves that Netanyahu himself would not make, never did make, and add it to the file of signs that this is um, he's not running this government the way he usually does. I mean, mm -hmm. we will talk more about the protests, just the sort of political practice and tra trade craft. He was better at this in the past. Mm -hmm. And you can either say, well, that's because his hands are tied now. He's a prisoner of the right. He's got all these more extreme elements in his coalition and are not allowing him to play his natural game. Or you say he's slightly off his game. And I've spoken to people actually just this week who wonder if, you know, he's getting to that age where he's just not nimble or kind of agile anymore or just not as in, in control and other people are able to make the running. But these sorts of political own goals, they didn't really happen with this, you know, regularity before. And certainly, you know, and if they were, if he did an insult, he meant it. Yeah. You know, it yeah, was a deliberate sure. move. And this yeah. time, it feels like it's just happening. But yeah, I go back with the judicial strategy. You just know he would have plotted that out differently, rather than allow, you know, in that case, his justice minister to go right out in front early. It does feel of a piece somehow, even if, as you say, we don't want to overread and ascribe too much sophistication to what's happened. I will elegantly ignore the fact that you discussed Israel with other people than me, and we will continue to discuss <laughs> Israel and the United States from a slightly different angle. We want to talk about uh, what was the New York Israel Parade this week, the Celebrate Israel Parade, the annual event that happens 
you know, around Israel's Independence Day this year, it was a few weeks after, and this year, of course, a very different year. So, you know, you have all of the Jewish groups and all of the support for Israel, which, by the way, as an Israeli, always heartwarming to see. But this year, as we said, this is a year in which Israel is, is you know, in a, in a very deep divide. And what you saw inside the march were a thousand Israelis marching for uh, Israel's democracy and against the judicial overhaul. And we talked about this when there were protests in London. You said how rare it is that two groups come together, the Israeli expats and the Jewish community living in that country. This is what happened in this protest uh, as well. There were 17 members of Knesset and ministers who were uh, flying to New York to participate in this parade at the very last minute. Netanyahu asked some of his Likud ministers not to walk, not to march in the parade because of those protesters that were protesting against his uh, government. But generally speaking, we have to say the protest movement is working not only in Israel, it is trailing the uh, Israeli coalition members and ministers everywhere they go, including in the United States. Yeah, um, I think two big things going on here. The first, um, slightly less important one, but interesting, is the one you've noted, and who knows if it will last or not, but for the first time, the a coming together of Jewish communities with Israeli, as you say, expats. Odd, actually, once when you think about it, why that hadn't happened till now, particularly. But it it, it happens. People report it in all kinds of cities where the Israelis keep more or less to themselves and don't engage in Jewish community life. It may be because often those Israelis are quite secular, and Jewish community life in diaspora is often, not always, often organised around the synagogue. That could be a factor. But somehow that taboo has broken, and that some relationships have formed through this. And that's interesting to see if it lasts. But the second thing, which I think is much more important, is this. For a long time, often on the periphery, more or less, there were people who were insistent on saying they were pro-Israel. They were avowedly supporters of Israel, but they criticized the way Israel is working out and how it uh, operates day to day, whether that's the, you know, occupation since 67 or other uh, actions by government, that sort of J Street position. And for a long time, they struggled to argue that that made them legitimately part of the sort of pro-Israel community. And I think the big diaspora impact of the judicial coup or the judicial reforms and the argument around it is that that argument has become, like it or not, mainstream, that you now have, even at the Celebrate Israel March in New York, you know, a thousand or more people who are there to dissent from Israel policy, and they are there more walking and marching. And, you know, I always mentioned some of the unexpected things, but, you know, there was Alan Dershowitz saying, and he also slightly walked it back, but if I was in Israel, I'd be marching. Miriam Adelson, widow of giant Israel, pro-Israel funder Sheldon Adelson, uh, criticizing the uh, reforms, the ADL, other big, just, big Jewish organizations around the world saying, no, this is too much. The head of the Jewish Leadership Council in this country, you know, writing that this is a dark day for democracy and so on, or that he was worried about democracy. All these things are a change. And again, is this a genie that gets put back in the bottle? Or from now on, is it going to be impossible for the sort of pro-Israel establishment to say to people, well, look, you can't criticize this or that policy because that's not part of the deal. It is now part of the deal since uh, this year. Yes. And also, we should say this moment is a 
television flagship opportunity for Israeli ministers to be on television surrounded by, you know, cheering New York Jews. Obviously, it's not what it looked like specifically this year because of the protests against the Netanyahu government. And we should say that these protests are crossing uh, the Israeli border and they're going global, right? We saw everywhere that the Israeli ministers and Israeli members of the coalition are trailed by protesters who are protesting this this uh, judicial overhaul. Um, this happened in New York as well. Simcha Rotman, who's the head of the Constitutional Committee in the Knesset and the man who's spearheading this legislation, was followed everywhere, trailed everywhere by protesters uh, who were, you know, yelling at him, heckling at him. He called it a harassment and it's at some point, he actually pulled a megaphone from one of the uh, protesters who filed a complaint against him uh, for this um, event. But again, this is what we're seeing everywhere across Israel and everywhere else. And, you know, if we're saying that Ellie Cohen dissing Kamala Harris doesn't go down well, that's also not a great image. No. For the, you know, it, it will have been fleeting in terms of American media. You know, if it was seen at all, it will have made the American Jewish press. It's, again, just not the public diplomacy a country wants to be doing. Um, it suggests that there is a disunity, lack of consensus, accurately, in Israel, but also casts the Israeli government uh, ministers in a, a or, or leaders rather in a very unflattering light Rotman grabbing a microphone Ellie Cohen you know uh, insulting a woman woman of color it's not not a good look as they say nevertheless they you know although these are very sort of eye-catching obviously uh, more intensely uh, dramatic news the conflict goes on and on and on, never stops. This week, a picture that went around the world was of a Palestinian boy, not yet three years old, Mohammed al-Tamimi, who died in hospital this week. The photograph that went around the world was him in a hospital bed, uh, heavily injured. He was shot in the head by Israeli soldiers while riding in a car with his father in the West Bank, uh, the father is still in hospital, although not with life-threatening injuries. And the IDF, Israel Defense Force, is saying that troops had opened fire near the village of Nabi Saleh after Palestinian government had fired shots towards a guard post. So that is the story, but the image very often worth perhaps a thousand words in this case. It's a photograph that did go around the world and not the only death um, reported and making news this week. Yeah, well, this happened on on Saturday. Uh, an Egyptian uh, policeman shot and killed three Israeli soldiers, one uh, woman, Leah Benun, two men, Oritz Chakiluz and Ohad Dahan. This is relatively a quiet border between Israel and uh, Egypt, and an investigation is being conducted on how exactly this policeman managed to cross the border and stay in Israeli territory for a few hours without being detected. But there are other questions uh, raised, and I want to tell you about the fact that this was a mixed battalion. We discussed the issue of these kinds of battalions in the Israeli military in an episode, I think it's one of my favorite, it's called Last Man Standing, episode 61, about the um, uh, women, uh, incorporating women, more and more women in combat units in the Israeli military. What happened was a public discussion on Channel 14 in Israel. Channel 14 is a pro-Netanyahu 
channel. I was speaking to an American friend this week and I said, it's kind of like the American Fox News and he, he knows Israel very well. And he said, well, it's more Newsmax than Fox News, but you understand the climate in which this discussion is conducted. And the military correspondent of uh, the channel, a man named Halel Biton-Rosen said this, I want to quote this for you word for word, if I may. He said, we should put this on the table, a female soldier and a male soldier alone, 12 hours at night at a guard post to begin with is improper. He said, the insinuation here is clear. He's talking about two dead soldiers, by the way, we should uh, reiterate. And then the anchor in the studio, I think he's the anchor, Boaz Golan, adds to this. It's unprofessional. It's disrespectful of the values of the military. There is a crazy left-wing agenda we're just scared to say it because soldiers died. Now, this obviously created an uproar in the country. And we talked about this, right? The more and more women that are in combat units, the more tension there is with the religious soldiers who are becoming more and more devout in the Israeli military and, of course, the rabbis who don't like the mixed units. Uh, and this is becoming discussion out in the open a day after the soldiers died. So many things to say on this. I think first, I'm just unbelievably crass and hurtful because of its, I think it implied there, not very thinly implied, is is blaming the victim. That the, these people were in some way, indirectly, or, be, you know, he wouldn't say it was them, it was their commanders, but responsible somehow for their own deaths when it's so obvious that they weren't. And so the people who made this attack weren't doing it because it was a mixed unit uh, they would have killed whoever was there, male or female, together or segregated. Just appalling victim blaming, first. Second, the timing when the, so soon after these, uh, and while these families are grieving. I mean, extraordinary to me. Third, just amazing that in, you know, there are places in, you know, Britain or America, you could imagine people being this crass and offensive. It just astonishes me in Israel where, you know, everyone has somebody in the military and and people don't have to go very far to be near a bereaved military family. You know, it's, I don't know whether it's every family has lost someone, but it's pretty close to that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, going back a couple of generations, it will be close to that. So on all those levels, amazing to me. But the the sort of politics of it that are interesting is, for, you know, I think a lot of people outside the country won't be aware of this network, that there is a kind of Newsmax type network on the, on the air producing this kind of stuff. But this battle over uh, the big social demographic battles that are going on in Israel, revealed in a way by the judicial protests, so often do come down to this clash between religious and secular. And the sort of site of this clash is very often the military. Mm -hmm. And so plenty of people have been saying about these judicial protests, what they're really about, strip away everything else is about this business of uh, one part of Israel getting sick and tired of carrying on its back, as it were. The other Israel, one side, one part of Israel that pays taxes and fights and, and does military service, and the other section that doesn't, namely the ultra-Orthodox. And that the protests are partly in a way about that secular or older Israel saying, enough's enough, we've had it up to here with that. Mm -hmm. And then to hear you know, that people are casting aspersions in a way on their dead because they're not religious enough in some way when, and I know it's different parts of religious, national religious compared to ultra-Orthodox, when other religious people don't serve at all. I just wonder if more and more this is these two forces are going to keep colliding 
And it's going to be about resentment over this because this is such an ultimate Israeli thing that everybody, mm -hmm. apart from one group, um, two groups, Jewishly, uh, one Jewish Israeli group, does send their children to serve and fight and potentially die in the military. And another section, ultra orthodox, do not. And the willingness of one to keep taking instructions on how they behave from the other, I think that sort of patience ran out this year. And uh, this episode is another example of how it will get aggravated in this particular case in a really offensive way. Yes. And look, I, I think if we zoom out on what is happening here, if there used to be any criticism of the army, it came from the left. What is the military doing in Judea and Samaria? Here, it's criticism coming from the right, but it's not really about what the military is doing. It's about what the military is. And we, we talked about, you know, that integration of women more and more in combat units. There's been a huge spike since 2005. Today, there are about 6,500 women in combat operation. And when you think of the fact that the women themselves wanted this, the military wants this to some extent. And it's the religious Zionism part of Israeli society that now has a lot of power in the government that is saying, wait a minute, this is actually hurting the military. And you hear this conversation on air, right? When the anchor is saying, this is a crazy left-wing agenda, right? That's what he's calling it. This, as you say, is going to become more and more a topic in Israeli life, for sure. I, I want the one thing I would love to know, I don't know how one would ever know, but is to what extent uh, and what conversations are going on at the top of the Israeli military about mm. this phenomenon, how they can keep things coherent, cohered and together, uh, how these strains are tugging away at them. They're obviously going on in the society, but how they manage to keep all this together. And you mentioned that Soldiers, religious soldiers are getting more devout. That's really interesting mm -hmm. to me. Yeah, I know it's that interesting. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I've, I've read that really, you know, the religious uh, soldiers, including settlers, are taking more and more prominent, more senior command positions. Often that wasn't the case in the past. You know, the old stereotype of the Israeli army leadership was it was the kind of kibbutz elite. And that now, you know, people wearing the kippah, wearing the skull cap are more prominent. You've just added this other layer that within that they're getting more religious. I mean, if I was sitting there in the sort of top brass of the IDF, I'd be thinking, how do we keep this thing together? And how do we make yeah. sure these strains and stresses, which are tugging away at the society, don't start wrenching us apart? And it's, it's worth remembering mm -hmm. that when uh, Defense Minister Gallant gave his warning to Netanyahu, he was saying, I don't know how we can continue to be a fighting force at full strength and capacity with these reforms, because things are pulling apart. I mean, this is a, a national security issue, I would say. Fascinating yeah. to me. Anyway. I, I filmed a documentary a few years ago about that, those two sort of, um, the, the tension between the fact that more and more women want to serve in combat units, that there are more religious soldiers. And as I said, I mentioned they're more devout. I remember interviewing a soldier who was a, a combat, in a combat unit. He said, I can't look at the instructor who's a female who's showing us what to do. I need to turn around because it's not modest the way she's showing us what, you know, how to work out or something like that. And I asked him, tell me something. When your father was in the military in the same job, did he also turn around? And he said to me, he was very candid. He said, no, he didn't. My dad wouldn't turn around, but there were much less women here. So you see this being a problem. And as you said, there's a, you know, a huge issue that the military is dealing with in the last five months, and that is of reservists saying they don't want to show up for duty because of the judicial overhaul. Under that, there's a simmering issue of, and as you say, it's not going to go away because it has to do with the most important 
important part of the society. It's the military and it's Tzvaha'am, it's the, the, the people's army. Um, and, and this is not going to go away. So this is another sort of, you know, moment where we remember that that is an issue that hasn't been resolved thus far. There's a lot of religious women going into combat units. I think that is also driving the religious Zionist rabbis pretty upset that they're losing the girls in, in the, the to quote, to quote one of them a few years ago. It's a, it's an interesting topic. I assume we will return to it in uh, later episodes as well. And now we want to talk about how these protests look from the outside, but in the eyes of someone who knows a lot about a democracy backsliding in other places in the world, and we wanted to hear from her. Anne Applebaum is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, a staff writer for The Atlantic, a scholar of Eastern Europe in particular, and author of Gulag and a whole string of acclaimed award-winning books about history, about Europe, uh, and about much else, and democracy too, which we're going to talk about. Anne Applebaum is currently in Israel. Uh, we want to hear all about that. Anne, welcome to Unholy. Thank you. And your impression so far, I mean, they've got you traveling around the whole country. It's interesting to know, in a way, first off, just what the purpose of your visit is, because I think it does have quite a specific focus. Let's not exaggerate the the deep significance of my short trip here, but I'm on the advisory board of the Israel Democracy Institute, and they offered a few months ago to help me meet some of the leaders of the democracy protest movement here, as well as some politicians and and others who have a a stake in the judicial reform that was proposed here in January. And it's interesting to me because I spend part of my time in Poland where we went through a very similar process a few years ago. It's not exactly the same. I don't want to overdo the similarities, but the idea of a very dramatic package of judicial reforms or things that were styled as reforms, but in fact amounted to a profound constitutional change is something that I'm familiar with. And so, although I know that the reform here has been stopped for the moment, it was halted, the story isn't over. And I'm interested in trying to understand you know, the, the context here and what's similar and what's different. I can say that as an Israeli, I was surprised by the sort of masses in the street protesting. And and also when you, you talked about the similarities between Poland, we also talk a lot about Hungary. How do you see Israel faring in that in that regard? I mean, in a way, the way the reforms were presented was similar in that it was, a, you know, a huge package. We're doing this whether you like it or not. We have a parliamentary majority and we're going to use it to completely change the court system. That was very familiar. Um, the, the reaction here was in some ways the same. In Poland, there were also mass protests across the country over several days and weeks. One of the things that's different here is that it's almost as if you already had this organic civil society in place in the form of reserve officers, army veterans, and to some extent, the, the tech industry that was also interested in figuring out how to make this work and how to make the protests stick. 
Um, very often in, in modern democracies, protest movements fail. You know, it's easy to organize them. You can get everybody together on Facebook or WhatsApp or or Twitter, but then they're hard to sustain over time because they're built on these kind of loose, weak social media links and they aren't based on a real grassroots organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Israel, you have this real grassroots organization. And so you had the ability to organize different kinds of protests across the country over a long period of time. And I think the protesters are also very wise to immediately take up the idea that they are patriots, that this is about the Israeli state and nation, um, and it's not mm-hmm. um, the private interest of one part of the political spectrum. Um, of course, there are politicians here who told me yesterday that this is the private interest of one part of a political spectrum. So, you know, they didn't win over everybody, you know, because of the special status of the army reserves, they had the clout at least to halt the reform and, and send it into a kind of at least temporary chaos. I'm just, I'm interested in that because I'm interested in in what are the tactics that can be used to fight this kind of majoritarian autocratic populism. Um, and here, at least, you had a kind of at least temporary success. I mean, in your book, Twilight of Democracy, you really warned there uh, others of what can happen, how it can work. And so I'm sure you've been sort of conveying that message to people you've met there. I mean, just first off, is it overblown, those people who say the risk here is that Israel goes the way of all bans Hungary or contemporary Poland? Is that overblown from what you've seen, hyperbolic? And if it isn't, what are the, I mean, you've mentioned some of them, but what are the kind of lessons or warnings, steps, tactics even, that Israelis should be you know, learning from what, in some ways, I suppose, brutally, the mistakes that were made in those other cases. So it's 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 not overblown because these things are longer term processes. You know, so actually, the bad signs in Israel emerged some years ago with the nature of Netanyahu's rhetoric, for example, the the, um, the, the Israeli Prime Minister's rhetoric, where he speaks about him and his party as representing, you know, the true Israel or the you know, the, the deeper nation as against, you know, people who are maybe not so loyal or not so not so Jewish or not so Israeli or something, you know, you'll you'll correct me if I've got that wrong. But the 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 nature of the rhetoric, the way of doing politics, um, the way of talking about politics, the way of dividing people, you know, you're with us or you're a traitor. You know, this is really familiar from other times and other places. And by the way, this doesn't always have to be a right wing way of doing politics. You know, this is exactly what Hugo Chavez did on the left in Venezuela a couple of decades ago. And so it's a process that we know. And, uh, you know, convincing people that not only they have the, you know, not only have they been elected to rule, but that they have the right to rule and others don't is a bad sign for a democracy. Um, And anything that's done to undermine a level playing field, particularly in that kind of situation, is dangerous. I mean, you know, in a way, democracy asks of people something you know, almost inhuman, namely that, okay, you elect us and we get to rule for four years. And then after that, there's going to be a free election, you know, taking place under fair circumstances in which our political enemies will be able to depose us, you know. And on the other hand, you know, people have to be able to say, okay, we lost the election, but now we're going to leave everything, you know, as it is, and we're going to let our political enemies rule us, you know, it's kind of, um, and it, it requires this agreement about institutions and the agreement about what is fair and what is equal, um, that 
that once you lose it, it can be very difficult to regain. And politicians can make a lot of headway by attacking it. You know, the institutions are bad. The system is terrible. It's unfair. You know, it's not really a democracy. We know there, you know, there's been all kinds of language used in different countries. And once you begin to have that kind of language, you know, you can wind up with January the 6th in the United States where one side just doesn't accept the result and actually attempts to stop the the peaceful transfer of power, you know, or you can end up with a political party becoming arrogant and deciding that it not only has the right to rule, it has the right to rule as long as it wants, and it has the right to change the constitution, even without a, an agreement to rewrite the constitution. So sometimes the, the tricky part is that it can be very hard to point to the one thing, you know, the, what is the tipping point? I mean, an argument over the committee that chooses the judges and how it should be composed and, you know, should it have two members from the Knesset, one from each party, or should it not have, and that can sound unbelievably petty, you know, and maybe that's not the thing that's going to tip Israeli democracy in one direction or another. But usually these things are cumulative and they go on over several years and it can be hard to pinpoint the moment. And I think the Israelis are right to shout stop at this moment and to force the government to step back and consider whether there might be, you know, I should say, I am sure in Israel, as everywhere else, there are legitimate things about the judicial system and the Supreme Court that should be changed. You know, Mm -hmm. almost every democracy is in need of some kind of reform. It's just a question of what is the spirit of that reform and what's the point of it. And Mm -hmm. at the very least, it seems that the, the protests forced the Israeli public, as well as the ruling party to ruling parties, I should say, um, to reconsider. You know, Jonathan asked about the lessons that Israel can learn from or should learn from Poland and Hungary. I want to ask it the other way and say what lessons can the world learn from Israel and the Israeli example. I think it's safe to say five months after Yariv Levine presented his plan, which is Netanyahu's plan, the protests have been very successful in at least halting the judicial overhaul. The Israeli example is very unique, and you mentioned the military. And I think what happened here is because there's a conscription army, because there's a mandatory service, the Israelis said to the government, we have a contract with you. And if you are breaking the way or or changing the governance system, then that contract can't stay the same. Do you think that's correct? Yeah, I mean, that's obviously something that's quite unique to Israel. I mean, the the position of you know the reserve army officers in in Israel is not like anywhere else. I mean, certainly not like anywhere in Europe or you know North America. And so they have a certain kind of power that a, a parallel group of citizens in other places wouldn't have. I mean, somebody also said to me that another difference is that in Israel, much of this group is, you know, very highly educated and what you would call, uh, I don't want to use the expression elite because it's misused, but, you know, it's a, it's an educated and sophisticated part of the country. Whereas, you know, in other, you know, in Hugo Chavez's Venezuela, the army chose the other side, partly because they came from um, the poorest part of society, and the army was their main source of income, you know, and so they stuck with the dictator because he could feed their families. Um, and so you have a, you know, the army and the nature of it is so unique here that that that, that mm-hmm. that's different. But there was another aspect here that is important that people could learn from. And that is that there was a certain amount of preparation for this. So I'm talking to you, I'm at the Israel Democracy Institute, which is a, a body that spent a lot of years studying you know, democratic processes in Israel. And there were others who'd done that as well. In other words, there was sort of a lot of knowledge in the system about what was wrong and what could go wrong. And when something did go wrong, 
people were prepared and they were prepared immediately to start educating the public. And there was all kinds of programs to, you know, um, explain to people what was going on. And there was a, a kind of mass education effort could be carried out because it had already been, you know, sort of underway before that, or so people had been thinking about it before that. In Poland, we didn't have that. Um, we had people who thought it might happen, you know, actually I'm one of them. And we had some political leadership who, who was ready and we did have a kind of spontaneous protest movement, but I'm not sure that there was a, well, I know there wasn't a mass civic education effort made that was profound enough or long enough. I just actually, just before coming here, I was in Poland and I happened to have seen a woman who runs an organization called Free Courts. And she was talking about something they're doing now, which is they send uh, lawyers around the country to spend, I think it's a week a year, they call it Constitution Week, to teach kids about how the political system is supposed to work, which isn't something that was done very well in Polish schools, if at all. We should move on soon in a moment to what's happening in Ukraine, which obviously you've been writing about and following so closely. But just before we leave this, I'm interested to hear what you think from the point of view of these movements towards illiberal democracy, how much they are bound up in the person, the individual who is pushing for that. In other words, in Hungary, how much is the move to illiberal democracy about Viktor Orban in Turkey, the erosion of the constitution, how much is that about Erdogan? And in Israel, how much is it about the individual of uh, Bibi Netanyahu? Or are these movements that are have their own momentum, have their own underlying forces that in a way outlive the individual they're associated with? And I suppose I'm asking that because is this a threat that continues even when Netanyahu is not there with his own motives, perhaps for eroding the judiciary because he's got his own legal issues. Or is it, you know, is it a trend or is it about the individual pushing it? You know, I don't think there's going to be a rule about that. I mean, uh, uh, one example actually is Venezuela. Hugo Chavez died. He was then followed by somebody much weaker and with much less charisma and, as far as I can tell, absolutely no popularity. And yet he was able to keep the system going through much, much harsher forms of autocracy. I mean, through real control, through the use of the police, through the use of, you know, plainclothes policemen and kind of thugs and so on. So once the system has begun to break down, you can always push it further. Um, uh, you know, I mean, Putin's Russia. Even actually, without the big charismatic individual. Even without the, the, the charismatic leader. I mean, once you then have a, an autocratic system in which a lot of people are dependent on that system or dependent on the state, it's conceivable that you can keep it going. I mean, that's, that's of course, another phase of the, of the system that, you know, I just, we're not close to contemplating that in Israel or actually even in Poland um, would happen after they leave. But, but, you know, remember also that these are autocratic movements, which often by definition, they appeal to a part. So let's not deny their appeal as well. I mean, they appeal to a part of the population that wants unified leadership, that wants, you know, one person, that wants clear explanations, that doesn't want a lot of nuance, or, you know, or indecision. And, you know, these kind of male strong men are often in a good position to impersonate that or personify the the state. And, you know, the, human beings were ruled by monarchs for many, many, many centuries. And, you know, there is there is something about that form of government, that kind of political system that does appeal to people. So, so yeah, the, the individuals in all these cases matter a lot. We talked on the podcast more than a year ago about the war. Uh, and you said to us about Russia and Ukraine, you said that 
the West has to win this war. We have to win this war. And I wondered if, if that is where we are now, more than a year after. So since then, I mean, well, what happened? I mean, the U- Ukrainians won the Battle of Kiev. They pushed the Russians out of the northern part of Ukraine. They they took back Kharkiv province. They took back the city of Kherson. They took back large uh, pieces of territory already. Right now, in a in a kind of mass of what you know in Russian is called Meskirovka and kind of all kinds of games and psyops, they are, they are beginning the process of trying to take back more territory. Um, that's what's going on right now. I was in Ukraine uh, a couple of months ago, and from what I could see, there was a lot of confidence about what could be accomplished. And that you really, on the, as we're speaking right now, that's the best I can say. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's clear that we have, we, the, the West plus Ukraine, have defeated the original Russian plan. So the original Russian plan, which was to take over all of Ukraine, make Ukraine into a Russian province, you know, reduce Ukrainian language to some kind of folklore, and literally physically imil- eliminate Ukrainians, I mean, kill them, put them in concentration camps, deport their children, which has been done in occupied territories. That has failed. They didn't succeed in doing that. And I don't think they anymore believe that they can. The question now is which pieces of the country can they still hold on to, you know, southern Ukraine, eastern Ukraine, um, and Crimea. Ukrainians want to take all of it back because their experience from 2014 is that when you leave some of your territory in someone else's hands, that gives them the inspiration to think they can invade you again a few years later. And I think what they want to avoid is some kind of ceasefire that ends with some, you know, unclear security situation, you know, that allows the war to begin again in a few years. And so the best thing, the best way for it to end would be for the Ukrainians to win. And by win, I mean, I just mean take back their territory. I don't mean they need to occupy Moscow or, you know, make Putin surrender. Um, that would be the clearest and most effective way to win. And that's what we're, we're about to watch them try and make that happen. And your reading of this destruction of the Kachovka Dam and the terrible damage ecologically and to whole communities in that area, is that the sign of desperation? If it is the Russians, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if it is them, is it a sign that they're getting desperate and having to go from ever more extreme tactics? Or is it kind of a threat saying, you go, you know, you do your counteroffensive on us, we can hit you much, much harder? How do you read it? So, so far, the Rus- this is not the first dam that the Russians have destroyed, and it's not the first flood they've caused in Ukraine. They've been doing this for the last few weeks, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been trying to create floods in the territories that they control, presumably to prevent Ukrainian tanks and heavy equipment from rolling over it. Um, so whether this was destroyed with explosives, which some people think it is, I mean, we're only a day or two after it's happened, so we don't have a full read on it yet, or whether it was destroyed by the Russians filling up the reservoir. It had been it had reached very, very high, historically high levels in water, and assuming that the water would sooner or later burst through, we don't really know yet. But you know, they are in control of the dam. They were in control of all of the, you know, all the machinery that runs the dam. Uh, you know, they are responsible for what has just happened. And actually, I have no doubt that this was part of their plan. I mean, they know that they will be outclassed by Ukraine's new weapons and new brigades, which have been formed and trained in Germany and Poland and elsewhere over the last few months. And they are now willing to do almost anything to prevent the Ukrainians from moving forward. And that includes flooding. Um, I think it was also kind of 
sign of just how far they're, you know, we'll do anything, we'll destroy anything. You know, these aren't, remember, this is so-called Russian territory, which they claimed in these fake referendums last summer, um, but they have absolutely no compunction about mass death there, uh, killing people. They don't seem to be rescuing people. In Kherson, there are photographs of people standing on top of their houses who, you know, in the, on the Russian side of the river who aren't being saved. I would not be surprised if the next step is an attack on the nuclear power plant, which is lies in also on the front line in between Russia and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're sending a message that, you know, okay, we can't beat you militarily. We might not even be able to defend ourselves militarily, but we're going to do anything we can to stop you. There are reports in the West of Putin's situation, especially coming uh, under the critique of hardliners saying that he's too weak and that his hold on power is shaky. Is this all kind of Western wishful thinking or is he really sort of losing his grip on No, so there's a real critique coming from, it's Mm -hmm. mostly not directed at him by name. In fact, um, there's a real critique coming from Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's the leader of this Wagner mercenary group, which is an Mm -hmm. important part of the Russian fighting force. It's not technically part of the Russian army. Um, And he has just a couple of days ago made this incredible statement where he's attacked the defense minister and said he was lazy and said something about his daughter living a life of luxury and the chief of staff, he said, you know, drinks too much and screams at people and they should all be put in front of a firing squad. I mean, I'm, 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 that's more or less what he said. Um, and he said, he, he's also claimed that, that re- regular Russian army troops have shot at his, at the, his mercenaries, that they put landmines in the way when they were retreating from Bakhmut, where, where they were fighting a few weeks ago. There is clear, open competition happening between different pieces of the Russian security apparatus. A friend of mine who watches these things carefully told me that she thought it was not a sign that they were trying to get rid of Putin right now, but that they are beginning to compete for who replaces him. So some kind of competition among, maybe not inside the Kremlin, but in the second level down has begun. And can we just bring together in a way the two areas of expertise? Because you base, you're based in Washington on the one hand, and yet obviously you're a completely expert in Eastern Europe on the other and that is American political attitudes to this conflict, and particularly on the right. We saw Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump both have tried to play it, diminish the significance of this fight and say it's a territorial dispute. And I thought very significant this first broadcast on the new Twitter platform by um, Tucker Carlson this week, attacking directly Volodymyr Zelensky, president of Ukraine, calling him sweaty rat-like, branding him as a persecutor of Christians, particularly that rodent comparison had people saying this is an anti-Semitic attack on Zelensky. It seems as if the, well, you 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 tell us, but is it the case that the Republican right is abandoning this struggle and that therefore one of the big things at stake in the presidential election in 2024 will be whether the United States actually stays on in this fight? Or is it just a fringe who are moving away from Ukraine in this way? So two things to say. One is that while Joe Biden is president, I am not worried about American commitment. So Joe Biden is committed. And, you know, that gives us a clear year and a half um, while he's in charge. Um, and I would say that, by the way, this right now, the same of every other leader in Europe of the main, you know, m- most largest countries. Inside each country, there are, of course, people of different views, and you could have an election that changed it. But, you know, for the moment, I don't see any, I'm not worried about it. 
Um, the Republican Party is is quite divided over this. So most of the congressional Republicans, including most of the Senate, are very pro-Ukraine. Um, I saw some of them at the Munich Security Conference in February talking very emotively about their, you know, dedication to Ukraine. And, you know, if it were Texas, I would do what you boys are doing. You know, I would defend my country and so on. So it's not a party-wide phenomenon. But yes, you're right. The the far right, whatever you want to call it, the MAGA right, the Trumpist right, has gone the other way, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, whatever Biden does is bad. And because this is a Democrat cause, you know, they're against it. Two, I think because of the language of liberal democracy that Zelensky and others around him use, and they're against that too. Um, and three, because, you know, the idea of a, you know, strongman leader appeals to them as well and to some of their followers. And so, you know, they still harbor some admiration for Putin, although Putin losing is going to is is going to do a lot of damage to his image. And I think actually some of that has already happened. Somebody recently told me that in Brazil, this there was this kind of popular support for Putin, which is now falling because, you know, if he's going to be a loser, then, you know, the Bolsonaro people don't like him. Um, so so the war has already changed his image quite a bit, I think. Um, but yes, I, th- I think if Trump is the candidate, which seems to me likely uh, right now, unless unless something happens, um, then yes, that will be one of the most divisive issues of the campaign. Um, right now, 70% of Americans approximately say they support Ukraine. Remember that it's a war in which no American troops are fighting and which mostly, so, you know, up until recently, mostly what we were doing was giving the Ukrainians older weapons that we weren't using anyway, you know, and which are, you know, produced in the United States. So it wasn't even as if we were, the, the cost wasn't, wasn't even what, you know, some people tried to pretend it was. Um, and so for the most part, there has been a lot of support for it. And so right now that issue plays in Biden's favor. Um, what everything will look like a year and a half from now is very hard to say. But it is also true that one of the reasons for this counteroffensive, one of the reasons why it's so important is that it, you know, between now and January, or now and winter, really, actually, is really the best time for the Ukrainians to try and make some progress and take back some territory. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's this kind of anxiety and energy and excitement over this particular campaign. It's because everyone knows that this is a very important moment in in terms of U.S. political timing. You know, a big victory for Ukraine before the end of the year could mean, you know, the issue's off the table and, you know, it's not part of the U.S. election. We did want to ask you, um, as as our conversation is winding down, the, the reports about the plaques honoring the victims of the Soviet gulag forced labor camps being taken down from buildings in Moscow. How do you read that? I mean, this is part of the Putin's, you know, historical politics that date back some years now and have just become sharper and sharper. I mean, um, you know, the, the the decision to take, you know, to, to stop talking about the negative side of the Soviet Union, to revive the memory of Stalin, to decide that 1945 and the, and the victory over over the Nazis um, is the most important moment in recent history and needs to be celebrated with a parade and Soviet flags and people in World War II uniforms every year. You know, all of this has been, this has been going on for a long time. The most important Russian historical association, which is Memorial, who I worked with extensively when I was writing my book on the Gulag in the late 90s and early 2000s, 
and was a really powerful and important group. They had a team of historians. They all worked in the archives. They published, you know, dozens of books, um, memoirs, but also works of research and so on. I mean, they've now been disbanded. They've been, and ha- having now won the Nobel Prize, by the way, they won the last Nobel Prize together with two other organizations. They've now been disbanded. And really any attempt to talk about the Soviet past in anything other than, you know, glowing light of praise is now illegal. So this is really the end of a process rather than something new. Mm-hmm. Another chilling uh, sign, really, of where things are and where things could go. And Applebaum, currently in Israel, thanks so much for coming back to us on Unholy. Uh, thanks for having me. Thank you very much, Anne. Anne Applebaum, Polish-American journalist. I say that partly because it was um, striking how she said in the first person about both the United States and Poland, Mm -hmm. you know, we in Poland and we in the United States. She obviously sees it from both vantage points, but a brilliant journalist and absolutely of this moment because she has this uh, really unusual perspective on a part of the world that for, let's face it, a couple of decades, people sort of switched off being interested. They thought, right, the Berlin Wall is down. That's fine. That's sort of over. And actually, how important what the trends and signs in Hungary, Poland were for democracy all around the world. A lot of the populist movements, Trumpism, Le Pen and everything, there were signs of it coming out of Central and Eastern Europe from the start. And obviously, you know, her hosts in Israel have thought she's got huge insight and lessons to teach about what happened there and what resonance and echoes that might find in Israel now. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking uh, when we talked about Israel and and the comparison to to Poland and to Hungary a little bit, and you think the fact that Israel managed to halt uh, the judicial overhaul, is that connected to the fact that Israel, while not being a very new state, still has always been a democracy? Does that also make sense when you look at that that comparison? But it was definitely a, um, a very interesting conversation with her. So we should uh, hand out some awards as tradition demands. And I think it's fair to say you and I agonized a little bit over the this week's uh, recipient of our uh, chutzpah award, because on one level, you shouldn't kick a man when he's down. And yet, on the other hand, I do have in my ear the voice of my old, now late politics tutor at university who said, when he would hear someone say, don't kick a man when he's down, he would say, when else can you kick him? <laughs> and uh, with that in mind, I think our Chutzpah Award winner may be the now departed uh, chief executive, I think, and then chairman of CNN, Chris Licht, out this week, um, fired from his job running the cable news network after a whole row that was started by a profile of him in the Atlantic magazine in which a whole lot of things were revealed. Generally, people at the network not happy with how he'd been running the network ratings and so on. But the sort of last straw was a combination of this profile in The Atlantic, in which uh, it showed some um, sort of behind-the-scenes colour of that CNN town hall meeting with Donald Trump. A lot of criticism for CNN for giving Donald Trump this huge platform, but particularly in front of a whole lot of Republicans and Trump supporters and, uh, you know, there were questions about, did they know this? Anyway, it emerged from that piece in The Atlantic that he'd been aware of, in his words, the extra Trumpy crowd at that uh, widely criticised town hall meeting. In other words, 
he can't claim he didn't realize it was going to be the way it was, which was kind of a propaganda rally for Donald Trump. So Chris left out. I think the chutzpah, though, is a, you know, that uh, cock up and handing a megaphone to Donald Trump using his network as a sort of platform. But also, really, the intense vanity of having a profile writer follow you around for a whole year. And in a way, if it's gone wrong because of that, there will be limited sympathy, I think it's fair to say. Probably in his own network and elsewhere, you know, those who live by the flattering media attention of a magazine profile can also die from it. There was a little bit of vanity there. And I'm afraid uh, Chris Licht has probably paid a bit of a price for it. So he gets, uh, I don't think it's probably the worst thing that's happened to him this week, (laughs) when he he hears that he's won this week's Unholy Chutzpah of the Week award. Yeah, well, it does connect to the beginning. I told you, no one ever regretted not giving an interview. Um, Yeah, well, if you go into, uh, you know, your tenure in CNN, the first thing you have to do is close CNN Plus, and then maybe that was the first uh, sign. And I, I can't agree with the what you said about the hubris and letting someone follow you around. Tim Alberta of, of the Atlantic, in this case, uh, for a long time. Um, okay, now after we kick someone when he's down, let's, you know, laud someone when they're up. What do you say? Um, yep. So let's talk about the Israeli national team uh, playing soccer or football. What offends you less? I should remember. Obviously football, yeah. Obviously they football. Were football. Okay. Yeah. I remember the first episode we ever did and we were talking about something and I called it soccer and I got a friend calling me up and saying, never say that to Jonathan. I was like, okay. <laughs> that was the only great tip I got about doing this podcast with you. So anyway, um, the Israeli team playing at the World Cup for age 20 and under. We call it the Mundialito. They have been successful in ways we did not imagine. They won Brazil, the game against Brazil last week. Israel won a football match against Brazil is something that you never thought you'd ever say out loud. We should say the last time the adult team uh, of Israel ever sort of qualified for being uh, in the World Cup, that was 1970, if I'm not mistaken. That was a while ago. Uh, and so they are uh, really succeeding. Now, This tonight, we're not going to be updated on this because it's Thursday, but they're playing against Uruguay in the uh, semifinals. And so we're going to Keep our fingers crossed. This is a really lovely team of young Israelis, Arabs, Jews, all playing together in a really great team under the leadership of uh, Ophir Chaim, their uh, manager. And uh, I think that they, uh, you know, we can wish them luck. Um, You're quite right about Israel's record in the World Cup, and you do have to go back a very, very long time. Although uh, I do know that Eretz Israel or Mandatory Palestine did compete in the World Cup tournaments of 1934 and 1938. One day I will tell you the story of uh, an encounter with the goalkeeper of that team many, many years later who I did actually meet. It's a long story, um, but so Israel has a long and storied history in international competition. Not so good in recent decades, it's got to be said. It's not really fared well, but maybe this young team are a sign of the future and who knows maybe Israel will beat Brazil in a World Cup that would be a story for Unholy in quite a major way if and when that happens but we will watch this young team and see uh, how they advance if you have enjoyed Unholy this week remember Unholy podcast on Instagram and on Facebook that's where you can be in touch with us any suggestions thoughts reactions we do uh, take those And of course, do spread the word. 
And we will say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, Rom Atik, and Yair Bashan. I'm waiting for embarrassing photos of you playing football. And we shall meet next week. Yeah, talking about it is one thing. Playing is really something else. We don't need to disturb the dreams of the unholy listeners with that. Uh, till next time. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.